Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, political scientist Anne Pluta on popular presidential communication. A lot of these early presidents, a lot of these men in that time, they were not good speakers, right? There weren't microphones. So what was like the practical way to be heard over a crowd? There really wasn't. But they were brilliant writers because that's how they communicated. The newspaper industry was broken down by political party. And you knew that if you were reading a certain paper, you knew which political party that paper stood for. So that's where you got your information. Washington knows that part of his job is to be the symbol of this new federal government. And because he is so well-respected and well-loved, he's able to take that on and try to convince people, hey, come do this, you know, let's give this a try. And Pluta, welcome to Chatter. Thanks so much for having me. I'm going to jump right in. Who's your favorite president? Oh, it's a hard question. I think it's like, who's your favorite child? Um, I have soft spots for different ones, I guess, based on um, one thing I, I feel for them is if they've been overlooked in a, in a way that I think is perhaps unfair or perhaps mm-hmm. unfairly maligned is another sp- spot. Um, so I think like, for instance, Rutherford B. Hayes. Um, it's just sort of seen as kind of inconsequential, you know, messed up reconstruction. Um, but I think there was actually like a lot more, uh, to him than that. And he probably had the circumstances been different, which is obviously the case for a lot of presidents, but he was, he was really interested in issues of equality and and things Mm -hmm. like that, that, um, he could have probably done something had he had a little more latitude. I think you're giving the American people a lot of credit there in even recognizing that Rutherford B. Hayes, you know, is associated with, you know, issues of reconstruction and all that, because I have a feeling that if you pulled 100 100 people on the street randomly and said Rutherford B. Hayes, they would, Rutherford, is that a dog's name? (laughs) You know, who who is that? But but good for you. Rutherford B. Hayes doesn't get enough love and we uh, will actually give him some in this conversation. Um, There is something to that, though, that there are the the famous presidents, mm-hmm. and some of them, I think it makes great sense. You get a, a Washington, a Lincoln, an FDR. I, I get that. And then the most recent ones that are in living memory, of course, you're going to remember at least the names and something about them. But there are some other presidents who are famous, at least to some extent, because they're famous. Like, I grew up thinking Andrew Jackson mm-hmm. was one of the greatest presidents because damn it, he was one of the few that was on printed currency. And and so I saw Washington and, you know, I saw Lincoln and I saw, you know, I saw Ben Franklin, which confused me, but then, you know, saw Andrew Jackson and it just didn't occur to me as a kid to think anything other than, well, he must be one of the three or four greatest because he's on one of the most common currencies. Uh, and only in recent years, as I've learned more about his presidency, do I, you know, have I learned to really dislike the the man and not think he's necessarily great in the same sense as a Washington or a Lincoln, but he comes to mind for more people than Rutherford B. Hayes for some objective reasons, but also just the fact that he's famous makes him famous. Mm -hmm. That bothers me. We need to correct that. (laughs) Let's get the Rutherford B. Hayes and Millard Fillmore Society going. So a different question than favorite president, and this gets more into your area. Okay. Who, Who are the best communicators in presidential history, both oral and written? Um, 
I mean, again, that's tricky. And I guess I'll be very much an academic here and sort of hedge and say, I don't know, that I was really um, setting out to say anything about who is the best. Um, I think I am more trying to sort of say that they all have um, opportunities and then, of course, limitations under which they're operating. And some are better at taking advantage of those opportunities and overcoming those limitations than than others. Um, so I think certainly, for example, like FDR, I mean, FDR gets how to use the radio in a way that those before him don't really, though Coolidge is pretty good at it, but FDR has this kind of, you know, added bonus of like, now everyone also has a radio. So it's, it becomes much easier to take advantage of the skill that he has. There's a misunderstood president, Calvin Coolidge, because yes. to the extent people now know him, it, it's often just the nickname Silent Cal. And yet he talked a lot to newspaper editors and reporters, and he was on the radio talking and Yes, yes. You know, in his personal life and one-on-one -on -one conversations, he could be witty and snarky with little one-liners, but he was far from silent, wasn't he? Yep. Yeah. He, he really, in some ways, was a pioneer when it came came to the radio. But again, he was just a little bit too early in that cycle of technology to, to get quite the same credit as um, someone like FDR would just a few, you know, less than a decade later. Well, it is a pleasure to bring you into the chatter circle of presidential historians and political scientists and authors. We've we've talked to Lindsay Travinsky about George Washington's cabinet and the evolution of the cabinet and President's Day as an institution, and John Avalon about Lincoln and what he might have done had he lived regarding the peace with the uh, Confederacy. We've talked to uh, Troy Senek about Grover Cleveland and the underappreciated presidency that he had and and others. Um, but here we're going to talk across a wide range of presidencies because you've done something remarkable, which is you've taken some conventional wisdom about the presidency and communication, and you've actually done the research and you've brought the receipts to show that at least one common understanding of a shift in presidential communications is not really due to the factor that's usually uh, ascribed. And I, and I do want to talk about that quite a bit. But first, let's ground the, the presidency and why we're talking about the presidency and communications so much. Um, the president, really, along with the vice president, of course, but the president is the only elected office that is truly national. Senators represent states and, and do have a national profile at a certain point. And even some representatives, especially in the modern era, have a national profile. But, but the president is the only one who's seen as a representative of all the people um, what does that mean when it comes in general terms to the president's burden, if you will, or opportunity for communicating about national issues? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that he's the only one elected by, or I should say they, because hopefully it won't always be he, um, is, is <laughs> the only one that is elected or answers to to the American people as a whole. And also they have this dual role, right? Head of state and also head of government. And so there are times when they're not being partisans, when they're leading the country, whether it's in celebration or it's in mourning. And that is unique in the American system for, for a politician. So I think that does give them um, some both added pressure and opportunity, again, to sort, sort of cater to the public as a whole. Mm-hmm. You've pointed out in some of your writings that that presidents, uh, when, when you really look at what they're doing in the context of when they're doing it, that presidents really do respond 
to the opportunities presented to them, some better than others. They're individuals. Some of them are more skilled than others. Some of them are more perceptive than others. But for most of American history, you've noted, presidents have had to contend with an imperfect environment that made it difficult for them to reach the public as a whole, even though most of them recognize the need to do so and the political opportunities in doing so. So I want to trace some of those variables over the 200 plus years that we'll talk about in terms of those constraints on communication and how those shifts in everything from transportation to media explain a whole lot about different presidential communication styles, uh, especially period to period. So let's talk a little bit about George Washington to to start, because obviously he set precedents in a lot of areas, Mm -hmm. but uh, the image of George Washington is kind of a a bit detached and, and not wanting to appear in any way like a demagogue and this is where Jeffrey Tullis in the um, rhetorical presidency and many other scholars have focused on the the importance at the beginning of setting the norm that presidents really aren't supposed to be too close to the people. But George Washington did some things that did connect him to the people, didn't he? Yeah. And I mean, I think that he was in the position and, and I do think that some of this, it is hard today to kind of put yourself in the mindset and think, you know, at that point, it wasn't even when George Washington's president, it's not sure that the nation's going to survive, right, as a nation. And so it's it's very tenuous, in fact, in the beginning. I mean, everyone's not on board with this new constitution, ratification, any of that. And so Washington knows that part of his job, right, is to be the symbol of this new federal government. And because he is so well-respected and well-loved, he's able to sort of take that on and, and try to convince people hey, come on, come do this, you know, let's give this a try. And he, he as a leader right, of men from his time in the military, realizes that there are certain ways that you do this. And he does hard stuff. I mean, he goes on these tours that are, by definition, difficult. It's really hard to travel in the late 19th century. You have to ride a horse. And there's not really good roads. And you can have bad weather. And you can get mugged. <laughs> and by the time he was doing it, he he was not a well man in many respects. So right. yeah, that's that's a huge burden and yet he chose to do extensive travel anyway. Yes. Yes. And he would go places where he knew there was, you know, need to sort of shore up whatever was was going on or not go. You know, the example of not going uh to a state until it ratified the constitution is also something that I think is is instructive as to what he saw his role as. Now, a lot of people looking at this say, well, of course, he's the president and he had not set foot in many of these states, although he actually had uh, as commander in chief set foot in quite a few. But he needed to do this just because, you know, it's a new country and kind of letting everybody know we're in this together um, by being there. But it wasn't just being there. He, He would give speeches and People have analyzed the content to show that they were often perfunctory and sometimes just ceremonial, but but they still had a political purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to to sort of say that something is ceremonial and therefore not political to me seems yeah, that doesn't make sense, right? Like there's tons of things that are, that are political and ceremonial. Um, I think you can say that maybe they're not partisan, and I think that there is some. Um, issue where people conflate partisanship and, pol- and politics and they're they're not the same thing right you can be political but not partisan and so i think especially now when things are so 
inherently partisan. It feels like everything is contentious, um, that that's an easy thing to do, but there's plenty of issues. So for instance, the existence of a new federal government or a constitution is inherently political, but it may not necessarily be partisan. I learned one thing from, from your research on Washington that I don't recall reading in either the, the big biographies like Chernow or the more specialized studies, which is that President Washington traveled with a speechwriter. Mm-hmm. That's remarkable. Yeah, that was, that was like a little gem that I, um, so the historian in me loves to go down like every little rabbit hole. Um, and so I can easily get like wrapped up in like, you know, footnote number 50, some like little note about some source from like 18 something and I'll go hunt that source down. And I, I somehow stumbled across this little, you know, tidbit that he was traveling with a speechwriter. And, you know, this was in part because he didn't want to have to on the fly say something and then it obviously not be exactly what he what he wanted or being taken the wrong way or cause some sort of issue. And so he had stuff prepared. So it was obviously, I mean, to me, that also signals some level of importance, right? He saw some gravity right. to what he was saying and he, in that he didn't even want to just speak off the cuff. He wanted to make sure it was prepared and, and thought out. Especially because of our modern bias. I mean, now when the president moves, uh, there there is a virtual army that goes with him. There's communications teams, military teams, surveillance and counter surveillance teams, the national security support staff, the political staff, the, um, I mean, it's just ridiculous. And Mm -hmm. if you see a motorcade with the president in it, you're just amazed at the number of ambulances and cars and other things going (laughs) along. And yeah, you can bring along a speech writer and a political aide and a military aide and all of this. But as you described it, travel back then was quite different. And the president did not travel with hundreds or thousands of people in a well-orchestrated motorcade. No, no, it was, it was much more of like a little traveling party, you know, some horses and, um, you know, so you, you were riding maybe 30 miles a day going from whatever inn that you could find. Um, it's not like there was hotels at every corner that you could be sure to, to have comfortable, um, Mm -hmm. lodgings or anything like that. So it was certainly an undertaking and and especially to bring people with you would be, would be even more so. You mentioned your love of history here. And I must note that you are an associate professor of political science and and not a professor of history. Yes, And yet you're doing political history or, or you're doing a historical view of the presidency in a way that a lot of presidency scholars in, you know, American political science don't. They're, they're just crunching data in many ways or looking at very specific aspects of um, the presidency and power, sometimes using modeling in, instead of digging into archives. Um, what is the real value of really getting your fingers dirty in the archives and, and going into those old newspaper accounts and other resources to, to shed light on the presidency and its history? Um, I, I kind of hope that I'm bringing the, sort of the best of both worlds, right? So um, when I talk to students about what's the difference between a historian and a political scientist, I like to say um, historians want to know everything there is to know about one specific point. And that point is unique and there's no other points like it. And then political scientists want to know, what can I say generally about this topic or this type of thing or this institution? And um, what I really try to do is kind of find a balance, right? That I do think that there's things about different 
times in history and different presidents that are unique to that time. And that understanding that context gives us a fuller understanding of what of the institution as a whole. And so I'm both trying to understand the institution as a whole, but then to understand those constituent parts by really like digging deep into into them and really seeing what's happening under the hood and not just assuming that there's some um, trend or that I can understand something from today as being the same as it was, you know, to 200, 250, however many years ago. But Anne, you've got to admit, there are some real methodological challenges to doing historical research in political science, uh, even on something that has been the center of a focus for 200 years, like the American presidency. How do you, how do you get what, first of all, what are some of those challenges and how do you, how do you clear those hurdles to do the kind of thing you do? Yeah. So I think that um, there's always in political science, we want to be as systematic um, as possible. And so I do try to bring that uh, even to my historical research. So when I was, for instance, searching for presidential speeches, I have the benefit, which I do think is a big difference of a lot of these newspapers being digitized um, and being able to use keyword searches. And so I have, you know, a bank of keywords that I would use, um, usually that some mix of like reply president and the president's last name. And I found over many, many iterations that this was the best group of keywords to give me the most um, results as far as finding these these speeches and things that presidents gave um, throughout throughout history that have often often been uh, overlooked. And then I think I also try to pick cases that are and to justify picking cases that are important um, for understanding whatever my broader um, my broader goals are um, and really laying out something that's a theoretical construct that I'm then kind of scaffolding on. So I'm not just kind of cherry picking, you know, ideas or cherry picking cases or times or whatever that I'm really trying to build it um, based on some sort of theoretical foundation that I that I set up. Mm -hmm. One aspect of early presidential communication that I just want to plant the flag on uh, briefly, because we'll come back to it in more depth later, is the issue of the what we call the State of the Union address, but the mm -hmm. annual message to Congress mandated by the Constitution. Um, but obviously, it goes far beyond that one line in the Constitution in terms of what presidents have done with it and how. Uh, Washington and his successor, uh, John Adams, did it one way. And then Thomas Jefferson tweaked that a bit. Uh, if you could explain it up to there, and then we'll kind of press pause and come back to it uh, later with uh, a future change and what it meant. But talk about that annual message to Congress and how that fits into the way you look at presidential communication overall, even if directed at Congress actually speaking to the people. Yeah. So from the, the very start, um, you can see with the annual message that um, Washington is going to be first delivering it right in person. He comes to Congress uh, to deliver this message about the, the literally the state of the union, the state of the country. They called it the, the annual message at that time. And it would be a rundown of what he saw as important, what was happening in the country. Um, and he does that. And Adams, of course, who is his vice president and then becomes president himself, does, does the same thing where they actually deliver it to Congress. Now, one thing that I sort of found early on in my research, but that was pretty interesting because it was not something that I felt was like widely discussed is that Congress would then give a reply and giving this reply would require all the, the members of Congress to come to the White House to, to um, 
to give the, the reply. And then the president would, you know, listen and say, thank you, whatever. That was great. Thank you for replying to my message. And this worked well um, in the beginning, but then it got more complicated, both as Congress grew in size and there was more people. So like something as, as simple as the logistics of parking, all the carriages became more complicated. Mm-hmm. And then also as there started to be more partisanship in Congress, that that was harder and harder for Congress to come up with a reply that made everyone feel, you know, that they had been heard. Um, and so Jefferson also, of course, uh, presides over the first chain transfer in power, right? He's going to come to come. Um, he's been complaining about George Washington and, and Adams as being, you know, too much pomp and circumstance, too close to a monarch, just kind of usual, I would say politics as usual. And so he really wants to usher in something different. Um, And so he also is not, this is something else that comes up. A a lot of these early presidents, a lot of these men in that time, they were not good speakers, right? It wasn't a thing you had to do a whole lot of. There weren't microphones. So what was like the practical way to be heard over a crowd? There really wasn't. Um, But they were brilliant writers because that's how they communicated. And even in that early time period, there's newspapers. Um, And so you can be sure that, it might take a while, it might take weeks, it might take a month, but eventually that speech that was printed in the newspaper is going to make it to, you know, South Carolina or whatever, or to, you know, up into the, to New England, and it's going to be read. And so that, to me, has little to do with anything more than what's the practical choice here, right? What's the way in which this makes the most sense to do? And so Jefferson changes to um, just delivering the message to Congress um, in writing. That stays the case for for a long time. <laughs> we can come back to when it changes. <laughs> so a couple of things there. You know, first of all, again, the, the American popular conception probably isn't accurate of Thomas Jefferson because there's this he has this reputation as just being this wunderkind and he's, you know, a Renaissance man and scientist and planter and elegant writer and and popular president and all these things. But by most accounts of the time, he he really wasn't a good speaker. He didn't enjoy it, and and he wasn't very good at projecting. Um, and I think we've been misled by Hamilton, among other things. Right, the play certainly doesn't portray Jefferson as a uh, <laughs> almost a shy, uncomfortable, uh, quiet speaker who gets nervous and loses his place and. Instead, he comes across pretty well as a speaker in the play. And I guess that gives us a different view of why he did this change. Because if if he knew, hopefully he had some self-awareness, at least in some areas of his life, and he knew he wasn't such a great speaker, then that's a pretty good explanation for why he came up with excuses not to go and deliver this in person. Because uh, his stated reason of, well, you know, it's kind of monarchical to go and speak in person and get replies and have to reply to replies. Well, that logic doesn't quite hold up. I think it's more monarchical to send a missive to Congress and refuse to take replies to it. That that seems more monarchical, not less. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it's an easy change too, right? He was looking to show ways in which he was different. And so to me, this is like kind of like, a, oh, this is like an easy one. I'll just change this. Who's going to really notice, right? And there wasn't a big it's not like there was a big uproar when it happened, because again, the only people that were really hearing it anyway were the members of Congress. So to everyone else, there wasn't really a big, you know, to the public receiving the paper a week later, it was it was no different whether it was delivered or 
or red. So I, I think that that's kind of been, that's one of those things where we, when we take our contemporary lens and we put it on the past, we make it a bigger deal than I think it was at the time. And to, to build on a, a comment earlier, this is, this is part of the argument that we see in the rhetorical presidency by Jeffrey Tullis, that, that Jefferson really was upholding this early norm of um, withholding presidential communication with the public and making sure that this really was focused on Congress, right? Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think that also points to another um, problem with suggesting that there was any kind of norm, um, just that there was no singular understanding of what the president would be to begin with, and that it was kind it was it was vague at its inception and sort of left, you know, to 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 be vague and then see what would happen. And, you know, Washington, as as we've discussed, already set some precedents and then others followed most of them and then made their own changes, as, as I think naturally one does. Right. And, and to be fair, if if a constitutional norm, a strong one had existed, um, of all people, Tom, Thomas Jefferson would be aware of that and would have cited that as his reason for doing so. And he didn't state it explicitly that way. So it does seem like that's a, a bit off the mark. Um, let's move forward a bit to Andrew Jackson, because you, you mark Jackson as a bit of a shift. That is, these early presidents, their communication style is what you call going elite, which is really talking to that you know, stratified air of American society because the, the franchise was so limited, because there were so few people that were really engaged in politics. Um, but that started to change with Andrew Jackson, and he ushered in an era of what you call going partisan, not necessarily going mass as, mm -hmm. as opposed to going elite, but going partisan. Um, why is that? And what does it reflect about the state of newspapers in particular at the time? Yeah, it really is a function of the newspaper industry, which at that time, um, newspapers are literally funded by the administration. And that is for a very practical reason that how else do you get your message out to the public? There, there really is no other way. And if you just had, I mean, there was, there's the American, um, I don't know if I want to call it the media landscape, but the newspaper landscape at the time is, is quite varied. There's lots of newspapers. And so, um, and it's just going to continue to grow right through, through this, this time period. And, and there's no way to control the message if you don't have your own paper. And so they, the president pairs with an, with an editor and they have a newspaper where the president is literally giving the editor, you know, here's my message. Here's what I want to say about this, you know, that, that. Um, members of the administration would 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 also write for these newspapers, and that's how uh, partisans mostly write because the newspaper industry was broken down by political party, and you knew um, that if you were reading a certain paper, you knew which political party that paper stood for. Um, mm -hmm. So you that's where you got your information, and so I call it going partisan because it's unlikely that if you're not a you're not supporting that party that you're going to go read that paper. So it's going to be very hard to go convince people that are not already supporting you of whatever your position is, because you don't really have a lot of access to them. Right. And that does help to explain the the oddity of John Tyler, because uh, he was, in a sense, a man without a party. He uh, was elected as a Whig vice president, but was not necessarily strong with the main line of the Whig party and ended up being kicked out. And therefore, you kind of don't have access to those partisan newspapers in the same way. And your message isn't getting delivered well, even to the audiences, the sub audiences that you need. Yes. 
And that's the same case with Polk, right? Polk really yeah. tries to follow the Jacksonian model, but the Democratic Party is already at that time starting to, to splinter um, in a way that it wasn't under Jackson. And so he doesn't have quite the same command that, that Jackson did. Right. Um, another thing you noticed, you noted about Andrew Jackson is that he he did start to put in very explicit references to the people, even in messages to Congress. Mm-hmm. He's he's speaking to the people, knowing that the partisan papers will pick up his speech and push it out to the people. So I don't know whether you know it's 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 a really conscious thing or whether he was just kind of feeding into this system in which he was a part. But from Andrew Jackson on, it's hard for you to pretend that presidents didn't know they were communicating to the people, even when it was on a very specific issue like a bank bill before Congress. Yeah. And I mean, I think the, the other thing just to remember is that po- politics, people were very engaged. There was a probably a larger percentage of people that were very engaged because there wasn't alternatives, right? So it's not like today where you can seek out entertainment in other venues and easily avoid politics. I mean, politics was was entertainment for, for for a lot of people, um, and so I think that you had you had a lot of people's attention. And I, and I think that Jackson, I I feel pretty confident in saying that I I know Jackson um, appreciated that you know there was power power in having public support, and that's why he spends so much time referencing it. Right? Why else bother if you don't think that there's some advantage from making it clear that you know that hey, um, the people are behind me, and I can and I can. Mm-hmm. show that through, you know, whether it's the ballot box or or whatever else. It seems odd to me that in, in today's commentary, we seem so shocked of this concept of politics as entertainment, that we have some people who are elected from, you know, whether it's gerrymandered districts or just very biased districts. And, you know, they don't seem to be as focused on representing as they do on on entertaining and getting national attention and fundraising as if this is something completely new. Mm-hmm. But I, I recall from our chatter conversation with Dr. Joanne Freeman, um, and she was talking about a lot of the, or especially early 19th century debates and even fights in Congress having to do with the, the slavery question and related matters that, you know, people, people were acting up and doing these things. And then it was getting played back in their home districts by newspaper accounts days or mm-hmm. weeks later. And these things that were seen as, you know, shameful nationally or kind of embarrassing personally could be seen as really noble back in their district and in their states. So this idea of politics as entertainment really is is nothing new. It's a different flavor, but the concept isn't new, right? Yeah, I think what has happened is that we had this weird period and I, I'm jumping ahead a little, but um, I think there is this this, you know, kind of interregnum, so to speak, where you have this like golden age where it's it's not, um, there is like a national audience and, and you have just the, the high barriers entry, all that stuff happens. And so I think people sort of look back on that with rose colored glasses. And so that I think is part of why there's kind of this pejorative, um, this pejorative nature to politics as entertainment that we see now. And I, and I think too, obviously the 24 seven news cycle and all the channels, I mean, some of it like you have a ton of time and, and air waves to fill. So you do get yeah. some like actual garbage. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I will definitely stick a pin in that um, that going national period because we yes. will revisit that. But there's an interesting figure here that doesn't quite fit into the going partisan. 
And he doesn't really exemplify the more you know, regional and wider communication that comes in the decades after the Civil War. And that's Abraham Lincoln. And, and few presidents have been studied more generally, and few presidents have been studied more in terms of communication mm-hmm. at a personal level, at a small group level, and at a national level. Um, you seem almost as fascinated with Abraham Lincoln as, as everyone else from this point of view. What, what makes Lincoln the same as those around him, and what makes him really different in some ways? He had a really deep understanding of the newspaper industry. And I think that given the circumstances that he was in, that was a big advantage because he got how it worked. Um, And so he, even with something like emancipation, I mean, he sort of preps the country by releasing these letters to newspapers and uh, almost trial balloons, right, is what we would call them in um, in contemporary times. And just to kind of prepare the population for something that was coming, um, he senses, I think, to some degree, the way in which the environment is perhaps going to be difficult if he doesn't have, because the administration newspaper by his time is quite weak. And I think he realizes that this is going to be something that's an issue. And so he, he kind of end around that and sort of starts to distribute his stuff to newspaper, to a variety of newspapers, so that there is no singular newspaper that's getting all the all the um, the stuff from him. And that kind of dilutes the power, doesn't let any one paper, because the other thing to remember here is that publishers and editors were really powerful at that time. And so you really wanted to be careful because if you had a really powerful editor publisher, they could obviously be um, fairly problematic because they would have a big mouth a big mouthpiece, a big audience. And so by kind of spreading around the messages, spreading around the information from the government, you can dilute dilute that power. So I do think he was quite, um, you know, quite smart about how he, he went about that. And I do think that has that had a lot to do with just his sense of the industry as a whole. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the, the movie Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis? I have. I have my students, when I teach the presidency, I have my students watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's odd to me that you know, 15 presidents up to that point, few of them have been represented on on film in a way that's generally regarded as capturing their their essence. I mean, mm-hmm. Washington, I don't think, has ever quite been captured. Maybe John Adams in the HBO uh, show mm-hmm. did get did get some of that, but obviously he's not of the same at the same level of icon. Uh, but I got to say, Daniel Day Lewis doing Lincoln. Um, seemed to capture a lot of the the character of Lincoln. I'm wondering what you think about how he was portrayed as a communicator in that film. Uh, I haven't really thought about that, I guess. Um, I, I do think he does. I agree with you. I mean, having obviously never seen the actual Abraham Lincoln, except for those like little tiny clips, I don't, you know, I can't be sure, but he does give you the sense that like, this is probably what this guy was like. Um, and maybe that's more of a credit to uh, Daniel Day-Lewis as an actor than anything else. I don't know. Um, but I, I think, I don't know how much, I mean, I, I am struggling to recall specifically what they say in that movie about, you know, him as a communicator. I don't know how much they get into his relationship with newspaper and newspaper editors, which is really where I think he, um, you know, so it's not so much in what he was saying to me. I mean, obviously it's important what he says, but I think where he really sort of was brilliant was in how he was, how he was communicating and how he was getting the message out, the, the care in which he took and in, yeah. um, in talking to the people about what was very complex issues. And of course, I mean, he had his detractors, you know, everyone did not agree with what Lincoln was doing. Yeah. Well, this, there, there might be some circular 
reasoning and influence going on here. I remember hearing long ago, and I've never seen it confirmed, but I, 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 it's truthy, so maybe it's right, that, that Daniel Day-Lewis did spend around a year preparing for the role, not just physically, but he spent most of that year you know, touring central Illinois and going through Lincoln's speeches and writings to, to get into his head a little bit. So maybe, maybe there is some of that. Yeah. And I heard, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin talk about it. And apparently that is, um, that is true that, that, uh, you know, he, and he is of course famously a method actor. So he became Abraham Lincoln first for some amount of time and, uh, you know, did everything he could to sort of soak up that. Yeah. Well, although he has not done it, um, Tommy Lee Jones could play Andrew Johnson because they look Mm. remarkably alike, but I'm not sure he'd want to because Andrew Johnson uh, was one of our worst presidents yes, and yes. you really focused in on his communication. I mean, he's he's famous for doing things publicly that presidents had disdained before, like mm-hmm. publicly naming members of Congress that he politically disagreed with and taunting them and calling them names, responding to hecklers in the audience and getting into yelling fights with people, things, yes. things that were seen as beneath the dignity of the office. But you place this really at the beginning of a, a new period of presidential communication that Andrew Johnson may have been individually ill-suited for the presidency and did some odd things, but people who followed him did have more interaction, at least overall. Describe this era and, and what in the 20, 30 years after the Civil War, what what variables changed that led to it? The biggest one is really, um, it's technology, it's the train. Um, so once you get the train, I mean, it, it changes the game. You can travel in a way that you just could not before. So, you know, remembering Washington 30 miles a day on a good day, suddenly you have a train where you can stop in 30 little towns in a day. Uh, and so you've just, the you've exponentially changed the way that you can, can reach the people. Um, and there's other changes as well. There's changes in printing technology that allow newspapers to be printed more quickly and, and for less money. Um, there's, uh, technology with, um, um, like telecommunication stuff. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but with the wire, so you can, you know, send things from location to location like Western union. So there's, there's stuff that happens that allows news to travel more quickly, um, in addition to the rail to the train, but the train is certainly the most visible sign of, of just, um, of technical, technological innovation. And so suddenly presidents can, it's not impossible to think that they can take a few day trip and visit a few states or that they can take a month long trip and go all the way to California as they, as they do, um, as Rutherford B. Hayes winds up doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then others follow in those footsteps, right? Why wouldn't you, once you can do it in a way that's safe and relatively safe, comfortable, quick, you can be in front of all these people. To me, it's sort of a no brainer. Why wouldn't you? Right. <laughs> that's so interesting. I, I think it would have occurred to me looking at presidential communication over this long period to really focus on media technology, right? To mm-hmm. focus on newspapers, both both culturally, but also just the, the printing technology and dissemination and to focus on radio and to focus on television and social media and all of these issues. But something as fundamental as the railroad network and how it allowed presidents to do that thing that George Washington recognized of connecting with the people. Um, You could do it more often. You could do it more quickly. You could do it more efficiently and more effectively simply because of something that had technically nothing to do with communication itself. Right. That's right. That's right. 
Yeah. And it's, I think it is sometimes overlooked, but it's, it actually was obvious to me if you're reading. So because of the way that I was going about doing this research and looking in the historical newspapers, I mean, you can just see that once they're traveling by train, the, the accounts of the tour would change to all these stops in one day because now they were stopping at all these little towns. And so suddenly you'd have 10 stops in a day instead of where before it's one, because you got to the town, you had the greeting and then you went and had dinner stayed overnight, whatever. Maybe you did too, if there was like another little town close by, but that was, you know, and now you're doing 10, 15 easily. You spent a lot of time digging into the communication of one Rutherford B. Hayes, (laughs) um, more so than anyone else I've seen, even biographers of Hayes uh, can't hold a candle to you in terms of some of the very specific research you did. Uh, Describe why, what's important about Hayes and what he did? Um, he represents the first big uptick. He really uses the train um, quite effectively during his time, and then others build on it. So Harris, Benjamin Harrison is going to talk more than Hayes, but he's really using that same um, formula to, to do it. And um, part of the reason I was able to get so deep into his communications is I do have to give a shout out to the Rutherford B. Hayes Library. They have a great collection of his, of his speeches. Um, and... I was able to um, do some checking against my stuff that I had collected against what they had uh, to, to sort of, you know, vet the veracity of, of how of my my research. And I you know found that if anything, I was like undercounting. There was probably even more than I, I um, had found, which, of course, would be even better for my <laughs> for my <laughs> the way that I'm approaching this. Um but yeah, so he's, I mean, Hayes is also at a critical time, right? You have this really contested election um, where they they come to a compromise in 1877 that essentially ends Reconstruction and makes Hayes president. Um, and then there's, there's this era where elections are really close. The Democrats and the Republicans are fighting it out in every election. You know, there's, it's, there is no clear, it's back and forth. There's a bunch of popular vote um winner, uh, excuse me, popular vote losers, electoral college winners during that time. There's, which of course, you know, we, we know a little bit about that now too. Um, and so he is trying to also haze in the, in the, um, wake of losing the popular vote coming to, um, the presidency in what was, you know, people were, there was a lot of, I don't want to say, I don't know if doubt's the right word, but, but there were certainly people that were, not, you know, his fraudulency. There was all kinds of things about, oh, you know, Hayes doesn't really, shouldn't really be present. So part of his job was to build that legitimacy. And he did that in part by talking, talking to the public. He also gets credit for, for something which I think has escaped most presidential historians. Uh, you've noted that previous presidents did speak to some, what we would loosely call civil society groups, but mm-hmm. mostly they were veterans groups or, you know, veterans uh, affairs groups, things like that. Uh, the Society of the Cincinnati for the early presidents in particular. Uh, but but Rutherford Hayes actually spoke to the New York Chamber of Commerce in 1877. And that was new. And it seems so obvious now. And within decades, it became par for the course for presidents to speak to a wide variety of groups. But he he broke that precedent in an important way, even during a presidency that largely gets overlooked. Yeah. And and some of that um, is, I think, uh, 
there's these changes happening in society at large, right? We're getting industrialization, we're getting um, other kinds of people moving to cities. So th- the changes are happening more broadly. And I think that this is, again, why the railroad is important, because the railroad is kind of a symbol of, of all those other changes as well. So I didn't try to capture all those variables, but I sort of feel that um, in a way you can use the, the train and railroad as a, as a proxy for the broader industrialization that's happening in the country and that has effects like, you know, suddenly we have these, like you said, civil society, early, early interest groups popping up. Mm-hmm. I think in that that stretch of American history between the the presidency of Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War and the presidency of Woodrow Wilson in World War One uh, becomes a blur to a lot of people, right? It's it's a yeah. bunch of um, largely bearded men who are president. <laughs> some of them for a very short period of time, right? Many of them Republicans, even though, um, as you point out, they were they were well contested elections, but mm-hmm. the actual results look like Republican dominance uh, yes. in the White House. Um, but there's one person who does stand out on the communications side between Lincoln and Wilson, and, and that's Teddy Roosevelt, because he was so quotable, uh, because he was so energetic, for lack of a better word, in so many ways. Um, but you remark that when it comes to these trends of presidential communication, that the stuff that that Teddy did kind of built more on William McKinley and what he was doing mm-hmm. than set a new precedent. So where where would you play so many people want to make, you know, TR their favorite president or because he's so colorful that he yeah. must be important in every way. But you say his role in terms of shifting perceptions and practice of presidential communication was not that vital, right? I mean, he just doesn't have the same. So some of this is what are the circumstances, right? He doesn't get a... a a new opportunity. I mean, maybe he would have really thrived if the if the radio had been um, available to him. Um, I mean, he does make the most of the train. He takes tons of trips. Does t- he? Uh, he clearly loves to talk. He does tons and tons of talking. Um, he goes, you know, to the Panama Canal Zone. He he wants to um, go wherever he can go. He's a real adventurer for sure. But there's not anything um, <clears throat> that he can really glom onto as a new technology. I will say that Teddy did one thing that other presidents didn't. Uh, other presidents had been shot and later gave speeches. <laughs> Andrew Jackson famously, you know, carrying a bullet for years and then obviously gave speeches in his life. But but few of them did it with with so little time between them as Teddy when he ran in what 1912 uh to try to get back into office shot and then decided to give the speech that he was on his way to give, despite the the bullet having gone uh, through, <laughs> through part of his his, his chest there. Um, so I, I do give him credit for that, even if he didn't break a lot of other precedent. Um, he, he showed that you can take a hit and keep keep going. Um, but that does take us up to Woodrow Wilson, and this becomes crucial for the the hint that we dropped earlier with Thomas Jefferson, because yes. Wilson famously took the address to Congress, the State of the Union address. And took it back to an in-person delivery after so many of the presidents, all of them, Jefferson and after, decided that they would uh, deliver it just in writing. You note that, yes, this is important and people noted at the time that it was different, but it doesn't really reflect a fundamental change in the way that presidents saw their role as communicator to the public. Um, 
talk through that a little bit and explain why it is that this was more of a reflection of other dynamics that that you look at than it was something so fundamental. Yeah, so um, Wilson is, um, as we haven't talked about Stephen Skoranek yet, but in, in Skoranek's terms, he's a preemptive president. So he's a president from the opposition, right? He is a Democrat and a largely Republican era. Um, he comes, he only wins election because the vote is split between Taft and Roosevelt. And so he is, Got a, has a disadvantage in the sense that he's not necessarily um, holding a majority uh, coalition. And so he needs to think of ways to get attention to things that he thinks are important. And one of the most important things, particularly for the Democrats at that time, was the tariff. And so when he's going to give this annual message and it's going to be about the tariff, to him, it's an, an opportunity, right? I'm going to make this speech just about the tariff and I'm going to make it a speech. <clears throat> this way, everyone's going to pay attention because uh, there was newspaper reports about how members of Congress would even all pay attention when this this thing had gotten, the annual message had gotten so long. If you go and look at some of them, they are just pages and endless pages and it's charts and graphs and numbers. And it's, I mean, yep. you'd be falling asleep for sure listening to this. Mm -hmm. And so he is really taking this as an opportunity to revolutionize that, get Congress's attention, get the newspaper industry's attention, which has now changed no longer partisan. It's getting increasingly um, what we would say is objective reporting, where the just report the news without these newspapers being um, beholden to one party or the other. And so, and there's more options. There's more entertainment. Now we're talking, there's silent movies. There's, there's other things that are available to the public um, to do rather than to write people are in cities more. There's more to do than just, um, listen or, or talk about politics. And so given that Wilson's like, okay, what can I do? And this is an innovation that he tries, I think in that, um, with that in mind, this is what I'm going to do to try to get everyone focused on the tariff more so than he's making some sort of statement about how presidents should interact with the public. Now there, there's one technological difference here that you mentioned briefly, which is, is radio. Um, radio has an effect in terms of the, the ability to get the message out. And, and Wilson, I believe, was heard on the radio, right? But he, he did not use it. He was not uh, an active uh, manipulator of radio for presidential communication at this time. It's very, 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 radio is in its like infancy at the very end of his presidency. Yeah. Yeah. Now, others pick up on that, of course. Uh, and then TV comes in. But what I found remarkable in your look at presidential communication and, you know, doing doing the correlations of the, the type and nature and, and number of presidential communications charted against things like radio and TV. Um, we mentioned trains already. <laughs> and radio and TV seem to be much less important in that huge picture than trains. And then in the 1950s and 60s, Air Force One, the ability of the president of the United States to go long distance without refueling, to quickly get from one place to another, and to, to move between states you know, very quickly and communicate to different audiences, sometimes with the same message, sometimes with targeted messages. So talk a little bit about that, like the difference, why it is that what we would see, literally we would see as the most important difference for presidential communication just has to be television, but 
how is it that you found that Air Force One actually was more important? So if we're talking about um, how often the president communicates, which is one of the I try to look at presidential communication from a number of different viewpoints. I call it dimensions, but one of them is frequency. How often does the president talk? And and clearly, TV doesn't make him talk more frequently necessarily. You can reach more people. Uh, people can see you, which has its advantages. Um, but something like Air Force One allows you to go. So yeah, the train is great. 15 cities in a day. Well, Air Force One, you could do, you know, five states in a day. <laughs> so you've just even further multiplied uh, your ability to to get to the people. And then, of course, being able to get to specific communities and to be able to tailor your message to those communities. They were doing that to some degree when they were on the train. They would say a little bit of different things when they were in these different cities. But it only grows more as you're able to get even more targeted in, in where you go and and how um, you can really think about how you deliver your message uh, to different people to different groups of people, which which again to me these are all strategic changes that make a lot of sense given the competitive environment in which the president is operating. Yeah, another change in the the nineteen fifties, and I and I keep making references to your work and your research, and I haven't yet called it out publicly, so we'll we'll put it in the show notes. But I'm referring, <laughs> of course, to persuading the public: the evolution of popular presidential communication from Washington to Trump, uh, your, your new book that is out on, on this topic. Another, another key issue in the 1950s that I certainly hadn't realized was the fact that presidents in their State of the Union address changed the, the way they were addressing their message. And they shifted away from speaking to the Senate and the House of Representatives quite formally, mm-hmm. started using, I think it was Eisenhower in 59, and then presidents after generally picking up on this starting to address my fellow citizens, my fellow Americans, using more popular terms just in the very introduction of the annual message. Um, that, that does, of course, go against the claim that Woodrow Wilson changed everything and broke precedent because there's, what, a 40-year gap, 40-plus year gap there between <laughs> the supposed event and the rhetoric. But how important is it that presidents started even more explicitly speaking to the people instead of just knowing that their message was getting to the people. Yeah, I think it just it showcases another um, another step in in uh, how the president views this relationship with the public. Where they always, in my in my opinion, they've always known that the annual message is or state of the union is for the people. It's 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 obvious in uh, lots of of ways in which they go about both shaping, preparing, even when it was being delivered by a clerk, the president would spend weeks, uh, it would be reported in the papers that they were spending weeks preparing this message. It would be widely distributed in the paper. So to me, it's it's quite obvious from, from the very beginning, but that at some point it becomes clear they're going to be delivering this message on TV. And so now they're, they're, they're speaking directly, the audience, the the public has become part of that immediate audience as the, the um, State of the Union message is being delivered. And so I, I do think it's significant. And it was interesting to me that it happened way later than most people would suspect. You referred earlier to the fact that that in this period, we had what turns out to be an aberration in American history, which is a, a media environment in which there were a few largely trusted major outlets that Americans were getting national news from and presidents were 
largely, though not exclusively, communicating through. And technology allowed them to do this, both uh, communications technology and transportation technology that would then be picked up by the media. And so it was this period of, uh, almost uniquely, this this national communication by presidents. Um, talk through that a little bit, and then how that started to change with talk radio's growth in the 1980s and 90s, and then the growth of other networks in the 90s and 2000s and social media in that time as well. Yes, you have this unique period in the um, really 60s, 70s, I guess, early 80s, where there's three networks and you have late, well, not even late night, you have evening news and it's delivered by these well-known, well-respected anchors. And they are seen as objective journalists who are delivering facts. And what so a concept. Every, what a concept. <laughs> and so everyone is having a similar experience of, and the president of, of course could get airtime when they wanted. So if they were going to give a national address, they would give it um, in the evening. It would be on the three networks. Everyone is watching, having the same experience watching the president speak. And so there's high barriers to entry, right? You can't just, there's no way for me or you to just hop on to NBC and decide that we're going to have, you know, a TV show and start talking about presidents. So you don't have a lot of voices. You have big national newspapers. They're still local papers, but they spend less time, obviously, on the president than than these um, national papers or national news networks w- would. And so there's really a common experience. The president has access to everyone and his message isn't being filtered through partisan lens for the most part for, for, for the public. And so you really have the opportunity to sway the public. I definitely remember probably somewhere around Reagan. Uh, but I do remember, you know, and now a message from the president of the United States and you'd flip between channels and they'd all be showing exactly the same thing. And then afterward, there would be not even really a summary, just kind of a brief statement of the fact of, you know, that was the president and he announced this. And and now you you really can't find anyone doing that. What you find is immediately, even in the the outlets that are considered more centrist or or, or not rabidly partisan you'll still find immediate analysis in mm-hmm. commentary, whatever you want to call it. Um, but, but you'll find some, some explanation or some excuse or something having to do with it. And that is decidedly different just in my not so short, you know, lifetime to go from a, a place where you could get presidential communication that was presented to you and you weren't immediately subjected to the interpretation um, to something where you cannot escape the interpretation unless you literally shut yourself off from all media the moment the president stops speaking. Right. And of course, you were getting the interpretation during the partisan newspaper era. I, I don't know. We didn't really talk about that. But the newspapers would certainly tell you if, you know, this president, the speech was not good. I'm old, but I'm really not bad. that old. So I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember that. But I can I can talk to my grandparents from the dead and see what they thought of the partisan yes. era. Yeah, so the, 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 having read many of them, you'll, in the, the 1880s, the 1890s, there was lots of commentary that, that was associated with that. The difference to me would be that none of those newspapers were pretending to be fair and balanced. They were, they were, everyone knew they were partisan and they were coming from a partisan point of view. So you almost didn't expect anything less from them, which I think is the real difference. I think the problem is now, because we came out of that era of objectivity, those 
lines were not clearly drawn, at least initially. And I think that's where a lot of our problems kind of came from. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair enough. So, so you characterize the modern era as one that actually has more in common with that partisan era Mm -hmm. in terms of the outlets, you know, chasing their customers rather than seeking this, I don't know, objective national perspective, Um, but also more targeted media. And, Mm -hmm. And I love the case that you cite, which has stood out to me, and I've used it uh, in in some classes to show presidential speaking style being different, which is when President Obama, in order to market the uh, healthcare.gov to young males who were not signing up in the numbers they thought, he went on Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis Mm -hmm. and did, in a sense, a comedy sketch with him that ended up having the message of, and here's healthcare.gov and why you need to go to it. That's the kind of thing that, you know, people will point to Nixon showing up briefly on Laugh-In, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or Bill Clinton playing the saxophone on Arsenio Hall. And they'll point to those as cultural moments that are important. But those are real snapshots compared to the president getting what now is probably 50, 60 million views of this little comedy sketch video yes. with an actor. Yeah, and that's just that's just kind of the the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, right? Now you there's interviews with YouTubers, and you know you would of course not be a presidential candidate if you didn't have all sorts of social social media channels, and you're going to be tailoring your message to different groups based on where that message is appearing, which is completely different than what you would have done in the going national period. What do you make of uh, to bring it right up to the present day? Uh, as we're recording this, the uh, president, Joe Biden, has just announced he is running for re-election. But he did not do what most presidents in the modern era have done, which is go have a huge event with American flags behind him and cheering crowds and thousands of people cheering and interrupting him because they love him so much, but releasing a short video message uh, saying, here's why I'm doing this. Um it's not unheard of. Uh, video messages, of course, have, have been released before for things like this. But uh, he certainly had the ability to go out and do a big mass rally in the sense that that other recent presidents have done. What do you make of the the released video message as a tool of communication? Um, I think that it, it does illustrate that it's probably going to, and I would suspect that you probably see more of this kind of um communication going forward, something that can be shared, that can become viral. I mean, you think of the, uh, yes, we can, the Barack Obama video that went viral, I guess, in Mm -hmm. 2007, um, that those things might even be more powerful than a one-time rally where you get people to come, getting very specific people to come out to a rally. You probably have a better chance of reaching a larger part of the population um, with something like a video. So the other president who seems at this point like an aberration in terms of communication is is Donald Trump. Uh, you point out that contrary to many perceptions, it wasn't that he communicated more. In fact, he did less with a lot of traditional media um, and certainly not media of, of one particular brand than, than many other presidents. He, but, he, but he focused a lot on direct communication with the American people through the written word, through, mm-hmm. through Twitter. And yet... Joe Biden hasn't picked up on this. Uh, his tweet rate is remarkably low compared to to his predecessor. So what do you what do you see going forward? Will this depend more on the personality of the president or is this merely a blip and the advantages, if they are there, of social media will kind of fade into the background? 
Yeah, I think that's um, that's a little bit still remains to be seen. It's a little bit difficult, I think, um, to say, you know, the, the benefit of going as far back as I did is you have a lot of uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? So you have a lot of, you can say a lot of stuff about what's happened far in the past. It's a little more difficult about what's happening more, um, more recently. But I think that I can't see social media being totally a blip because I think obviously there is, it has a lot of use in as far as being able to get to these targeted audiences. And I do think that as long as we're in this more partisan era, it's hard for me to see how else a president would communicate. It makes sense to do this micro-targeting where you can send a message to, you know, men of a certain age or women of a certain age or women that are interested in, you know, whatever, women that are interested in pottery or or women that are interested in football or whatever. You know, you can find all these micro-groups and then target your message to them. So it seems to me that that will, is useful to, pres- to presidents uh, because you're not going to be able to move people that are not already supporting you. And of course, you can find all kinds of information about which of these groups might be likely support you, how to motivate them, blah, blah, blah. Um, I just think maybe we haven't quite found the president who's maximized um, social media yet. You know, it, it takes a little bit of time. The most of it's still pretty immature. If you kind of look at the, at the Mm -hmm. timeline, you know, it takes a while for, for presidents to really figure out like, yes, this is how you use this tool with radio or TV. The first ones almost never get it entirely correct. Um, and probably even more than those other technologies, social media moves really fast. So that would be, to me, another thing. And I think, too, this is probably a place, and you would hope that, you know, Joe Biden probably has a team that's that's young and that's, you know, working these channels um, in that way. But I would think it'd be more, it'd be easier when we get a president who is a digital native, right? It'll be interesting to see how they use some of these things rather than someone who grew up in a in an era when none of these things existed. So I think some of those things are to be seen. Um, and of course, Twitter has changed so much. I don't know if you could even get the same um, utility out of it that Trump did. Um, so I think some of that is just a matter of kind of, you know, seeing how this plays out over the next, I'd be interested to see what happens um, probably in the next 10 years or so, and then sort of see how Trump looks in in comparison to that, whether it looks like, oh, this was a blip or this was something that was really the start of something um, that then became, you know, maybe it's three presidents from now that really figure out how to use it to its maximum effect. We've we've talked to this point, Anne, about actual presidents, about, about no kidding, nonfiction. But of course, there are some fictional representations of presidents that are are famous because of their communications in some ways. And immediately in my mind, I go to a few movies and TV shows like uh, Michael Douglas in The American President and Harrison Ford in Air Force One. Martin Sheen in The West Wing, of course, stands out. Uh, Bill Pullman with his famous speech in Independence Day. And then more recently, uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus in Veep, right? Um, all of them communicating in, in in very distinct ways, in very distinct moments. And I'm wondering if there's any fictional representations of presidents that you think are interesting uh, as someone who studies the history of the presidency and the history of presidential communication. Are there any of those or others that, that really strike you as remarkable? Um, that's a good question, but I don't really have, I don't think a good answer. I am... Um... It may be interesting in that my like nerdiness for the presidency is sort of 
um, contained to my like work life. <laughs> so I don't really, I don't tend to like, I liked scandal um, with Kerry sure. Washington, but sure. <laughs> generally I don't like to watch politics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's hard because then you have shows like um, the Kevin Spacey show that was on forever. Oh, House of Cards. Yes. Yeah. That's too, way too violent for me. Right. And it, it ends up going into directions that, that may have started where it's a really interesting character study or something about a, a communication style. And then pretty soon, you know, it, it gets into something else entirely. Yeah. So you've done this work, but I know you've also uh, done some work on, you know, the role of, of women in politics and other aspects of well, political history. Um, what topics interest you the most now? It's not always going to be the history of presidential communication, but but what else is there in the that intersection of politics and history that that you think is really fascinating? Um, I'm really actually interested. It's still going to be about presidents, but it's uh, this intersection between <laughs> between gender and um, presidents. So I'm sort of thinking about my next book as being something about how women were able to influence presidential politics. Well, women, I should use air quotes because, of course, a huge group like women can't just be, you know, you can't just talk about women. So I'm really talking about suffragettes, other kinds of activists, how they were able to act uh, really influence presidential politics before they were able to vote. And so I'm interested in in looking closely at that period, uh, pretty much from the end of the Civil War um, until the passage of the 19th Amendment, and just really taking a deep dive into how, um, how, how that those activists were able to get presidents to notice them, even though they didn't have the power to vote. That will be fun. Please uh, keep me posted. On how you do on that research. I'm interested in reading that as well. Well, you know that we end our conversations here on Chatter by reaching into our Chatter box. And let me see what random question is here for you. What book or books are on your nightstand? Okay. Yeah. So I have, I I like to usually have a bunch of books going. um, And I have some pretty, I guess, esoteric interests. I like sharks. Um, I have one called Devil's Teeth, which is about great white sharks in the San Francisco Bay. Um, I like that one. I have one called 12 Days of Terror, which is about shark attacks in New Jersey in um, the 19, like 12, 13 time period at the Jersey Shore, which is like for big for the Philly area. We go down the shore to the beach. Um, <laughs> so those are like, two, and I also like to read about about waves. So I guess I like the ocean. So there's this book called The Wave, which is about um, these uh, rogue waves, like the hundred footers that often... Um, destroy boats and people try to surf and all that other stuff. So that's, that's mm-hmm. what I'm reading now. That, that is amazing. And now I want to see an intersection of all these interests, right? I want to see like uh, an episode of the, the, the movie series Sharknado that has presidents talking and being eaten by sharks. And that way you can combine all of this in one. And I love the NBA. That's my other thing. Go Sixers. That's my other passion. Well, and thank you for spending the time and talking through all of this. I appreciate it. Uh, again, it's my I'll pleasure to, Persuading the Public, The Evolution of Popular Presidential Communication from Washington to Trump, which brings a whole lot of the detail about everybody from Washington to Rutherford B. Hayes up to Trump and even a little bit of Joe Biden. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.